Hey, welcome to the Grounded Truth Podcast. It's a podcast where we gather some of the world's most influential data scientists, machine learning practitioners, and innovation leaders for conversations on the most relevant topics in AI today. I'm your host, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success here at Watchful, the world's most efficient way to explore and label unstructured text for your data analytics and machine learning workflows. You can try Watchful for free at www.watchful.io. Joining me today is one of those innovation leaders, David Wang, Chief Innovation Officer at Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, a law firm synonymous with Silicon Valley as both a service provider of choice, as well as embodying the spirit of pushing the envelope as the first law firm to win one of Fast Company's most innovative companies in America. On a side note, he's a pretty impressive artist and a father. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for joining. Uh, so today, I really wanted to talk about trust. And I think uh, as uh, the, a representative of a law firm and uh, a longtime corporate lawyer yourself, uh, trust is the name of the game. Um, specifically, trust in natural language, I feel, is kind of uh, the, the domain of, uh, of, of a legal expert. And so I'd maybe like to start with kind of a philosophical question. Uh, how do we define trust? How do you define trust just broadly, even outside the context of you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning solution? Yeah, I think the, the most important thing about trust is that we have to remember that trust is subjective. I think the the dichotomy or at least the friction I think you're seeing now with uh, the new kind of machine learning techniques that are being introduced into market, uh, as well as kind of the general like notion in the world where we can just do a lot of things in an automated fashion supported by software. It comes up against trust so often because you know, each individual person forms their own opinions ultimately about what they trust and how they trust. And even though that there might be patterns, um, ultimately that decision is up to the individual, right? And so you, I think you have this almost bipolar distribution in terms of, on the one hand, on, you know, kind of in my world, uh, high-end professional services, where, you know, a lot of that trust is really conveyed by the brand and social proof of kind of the expertise that we provide, you know, through our partners who, you know, you're like, oh, this person represented Google or Tesla or Twitter or came, yeah, went to these schools, know. holds these right, degrees, went to the right schools. Yeah. my friend used them at this funds. And so that gives you that kind of initial proof. And then by working with that person and then they kind of display to you their expertise and capability, and then they give you that sense that, oh, this can be trusted so that when you get to one of these novel questions um you kind of learn learn that trust and then you have that subjective relationship with a person right um you know versus on the other end where we have kind of these you know machine learning algorithms that you know frankly you wouldn't really be able to explain how they derived the decision but you also don't quote unquote have a relationship with the model right and so that i think where you get a little bit of that trust gap yeah, it's uh, it's it's really interesting because we're moving. It's like trust fundamentally is like a very human problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's there's no mother mother brain or you know queen queen ant or bee that's kind of controlling signals and deciding what everybody's doing, and so it's interesting that we're starting to run into these problems uh, from developed by engineering, uh, which it very much so relies on a deterministic problem space. Uh, this is the, this is truth. This is the, what is supposed to be executed. We can run tests. We know what, uh, trust, 
or you know, can be an implicit contract um, from the world of engineering, but moving into the world of decisions, um, things that humans are consuming, uh, natural language and you know, decisions and ideas and concepts conveyed through are fundamentally non-deterministic processes. And trust is one malleable. And by extension, trust is kind of an understanding of you know, truth or you know, the name of the podcast, Grounded Truth. You know, it's kind of our statement. There is no such thing as true ground truth. There is no absolute, maybe death and taxes uh, to go to the old axiom. But even then, you know, dystopian tomorrow, nuclear war, we have no taxes, maybe only death. Maybe we somehow cheat death as an, the intelligent monkeys that we are. And we have to change these fundamental truths based on consensus and heuristics, understanding and, you know, validation, these scientists, these, you know, uh, these studies. And uh, I think we as a society, uh, for one, on a very high level and on a more micro level, an enterprise, a business trying to execute and use on these techniques and technologies, uh, having to wrestle with non-determinism. There may be no absolute truth in these outputs, sometimes good at like, what is the expectation of that? And we have to accept that even the best of humans make, make mistakes with the best of intentions. Why? reasons, uh, misinterpretation, you know, misunderstanding of the definition, et cetera. And so, uh, it's really interesting to, to, to see kind of, uh, this change or this, uh, uncomfortableness, so to speak with these non-deterministic outcomes where we've just been kind of, uh, shielded by expectations and engineering and data for the past, you know, X number of years, um, in a deterministic world. Yeah. It's, it's really funny. You, you keep coming back to this, which I totally agree to like the, this deterministic versus non-deterministic. And so this reminds me of, you know, as a person, someone who's, you know, practiced law for more than 10 years um, yeah. before becoming kind of a technology person. Um, you know, the lawyer's favorite phrase is it depends. Yep. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> right. And so why, why is that? Right. If you, if you ask yourself that question, um, so much of what we deal with are, non-deterministic right and also it's not only it's non-deterministic it's also that like it's a it's risk it's you know you're yeah. really kind of managing the risk of a particular thing happening and you know one of the things that I, I find incredibly challenging and also very interesting kind of in the legal field is just kind of measuring risk and having kind of an understanding of truth in that like if you make a decision this way, like if you kind of de decide X, Y, and Z, like does that down the line lead to A, B, and C or just A, B, right? Or like, how does that, and what's the proportion or like your probability of that happening? Like to me, that is something that approaches truth as much as you can, like, you know, but like, you know, and that's a question that I think lawyers get asked all the time by clients. It's like, oh, you know, if we do this, what are the chances that I get sued? Or, you know, yeah. and then that's when you bring out that it depends, right? Because it's just, you can, you essentially are listing a kind of a set of features of a specific circumstance that would make it more likely that, as, you know, event A were, would occur or event B would occur. But, um, Beyond that, you know, it's, you're really challenged to give people really much more concrete solutions than that. Yeah. And, uh, and forgive me, I am not a lawyer and I'm happy to say that on this call. Uh, what's the term for uh, it, you can have a jury of your peers despite being 
you know, uh, guilty of a particular charge, absolve uh, you of that charge for during nullification. Yes, during during nullification. Thank you. Uh, it, exactly that. Even then, uh, you By could the way, be absolutely. The, the urban myth is not true. If you just mentioned jury nullification, that you can get out of jury duty. So just FYI for folks out there, don't 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 try that one at home. <laughs> value value add there. Uh, you know, we, that's uh, some free legal advice there. Um, but even then, that truth that you are assessing risk against technically has an out. There is, you know, it's the green on the roulette wheel. It's this very small chance that, you know, given a particular circumstance, you have a jury of your peers that can simply just for reasons that they feel, for reasons that are not deterministic at all, uh, decide, nah, it's okay. You are fine. Like you, you, you should not get in trouble for this particular crime or, you know, whatever it might be. So, uh, it's, you know, I think we can, pretty firmly say, at least in, in the near term, that the, the idea of truly making legal practice uh, something that's truly deterministic and programmable is uh, pretty far from the truth. Yeah, I absolutely think that that's true. But I think that people, I always think that people kind of like underestimate the future, or overestimate the present, so to speak, right? And so yeah. that I think is a theme that I come back to again and again when I talk to people, because I think it's, you know, just to speak on that jury point, even though I'm not a trial lawyer, you know, I was a corporate lawyer, I wanted to become a trial lawyer. But then I realized that like very quickly in law school, um, that it wasn't going to be like Ali McBeal, where you just get to wear a sharp suit and yell objection a lot and make a lot of money. Uh, it wasn't that simple. Hey, I, I saw Legally Blonde. It's not that hard. <laughs> um, I object. Yeah, I object. Um the whole, this whole court is out of order. Um, the, <laughs> the, I, but you know, you, you going back to your question or like, okay, well, how do you get the jury to acquit? But there are things that as it, if you kind of look at the data that actually are very predictive of certain outcomes, it's not predictive as in like, okay, you know, if A then B, but if you're taller, better looking, you know, if you're trial happens um, not right before lunch, right, on an empty stomach, uh, if you're a certain race, right, like all of those things have a statistically significant impact on the outcome, right? And it's, if you don't look at the data, you wouldn't know these things. And then I think the, the trouble with the profession, or at least the people that are studying these things in the profession always point out that like, you know, when you look at the data, so often the things that pop out are you are things that really shouldn't have any bearing on the impact on something as important as, you know, life and death sometimes, right? Or at the very least, someone's freedom and reputation um, that is determined by whether you have a full stomach or not. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> at the so it's like the I think the biggest takeaway is that at the best in the absolute best of cases, it's an informed, you can inform yourself with the data and you can make statistically uh, significant or impactful decisions uh, to set up the best scenarios and, you know, stepping away from the trial selection, which is more kind of uh, broad and philosophically, but uh, it's in human decision-making and by extension in decision science or, you know, data science, because I loved how you started with uh, the lawyer's favorite phrases. It depends. Well, I can tell you without a doubt, uh, talking to all of our clients and prospects over uh, so many years, the number one and most trivial answer to all questions data science related is it depends because it's, you can only inform yourself as the best you possibly can, but there's still going to be some percent. It's, ne it's never going to be truly deterministic. If so, it's not really a hard problem more than likely. Uh, and so maybe kind of like shifting 
to a little bit more real world applications from the high and philosophical. Uh, we worked on a project together, and I think a big part of why you were named one of Fast Company's most innovative comp- uh, one of Fast Company's most innovative companies, uh, and the first law firm um, is adopting uh, technologies and your title in innovation, uh, kind of cutting edge technologies and bringing them into the firm, uh, and in a vertical. Uh, and you know, no offense here, but I don't think law is largely thought as the most cutting edge or fast moving or quickly adopting of cutting edge technologies. And so I think that's a really a testament to uh, what you've done. But you know, I want to hear from you a little bit about you know how did you garner trust from having an idea uh, or bring in you know outside of our relationship. Um, with Watchful, even as you assess other vendors who are touting XYZ tools, how do you go from like selection to this is an idea, I think we can do this, to garnering business support through validating those results, even from a technical level with to maybe some individuals that aren't familiar with the core technologies? Yeah, um, I, that's a great question. Uh, I, you know, the proof is in the demonstration, I would say, like the... Um, the thing about law firms, and I absolutely agree. I mean, we, there is no offense at all because it's totally true. We are definitely kind of of the dinosaur vintage as far as industries in terms of adopting uh, technology for a number of reasons. You know, we're widely known as one of the most innovative law firms in the world. And I always just joke that, you know, that's just like being the fastest fat kid, you know, like <laughs> I, I, I can only say that as a former fat kid myself. So um, the, you know, the, but lawyers are in really interesting because the 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 thing that I always tell people is that what they don't understand about lawyers is that lawyers, the more successful a lawyer is, the more this person has essentially been pre-vetted and pre-selected for skepticism, right? And so you're talking about a very skeptical cohort of people here. Um, if there's one unifying trait of all lawyers, I think the other one's actually introversion, surprisingly. You wouldn't think so by watching TV. But um, but they're very, very rational people, right? Lawyers are skeptical, but they're rational. And so, you know, I always joke that like the, the standard that all lawyers apply to new technology is beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Uh, which is, for those of you that are familiar, the kind of standard you use for criminal proceedings, right? Um, which is not really kind of a reasonable thing in and of itself, but I always joke that, you know, the way that you can get them to believe you and trust um, that it works is just to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, right? And so yeah. how do you do that? If Once you understand that that is the thing that you're trying to do, then it becomes clear um, what it is that you kind of need to do, right? And so the... Um, um, I'm kind of famous in my industry for devising these kind of like in what boils down to standardized exams of uh, capabilities that we're looking for. And so when we work with, um, you know, and we get this, these inbounds all the time because, you know, we are who we are. And also, of course, being part of the ecosystem, we know a lot of startups. So startups come to us all the time. It's like, oh, why don't you try this or this or this? And, you know, for the ones that are, have like an interesting proposition, I usually kind of uh, have something that's baking already if I'm truly interested in solving a particular problem. And the first thing that I start with is, okay, here's kind of distilling down three or four or whatever the number is of core um, capabilities that you need to demonstrate in a POC such that I can trust it, right? That you like that if we actually successfully executed that the engagement wouldn't be a waste of time. Right. Otherwise, like if you can't demonstrate that, 
then you know what are we even doing here right but starting that, with mean, your, that, core, your core requirements but, right exactly but like you know doing that is painful and lots of times people don't even want to kind of bother and so i mean working together with you guys i think you definitely pass that bar in terms of you know like we worked together for a while before we actually like went you know like look this actually works and it can do this this and this and then proceed its production right and so um yeah it, I, I i often tell people like you know, for the world we live in, at least in the, you know, in specifically data labeling and even getting to the point of, you know, training a model and pointing it into production, that is still, uh, you know, only a portion of the iceberg. Uh, an enormous amount is data collection, just project planning and garnering, you know, support from leadership uh, that may be even a couple rows removed that it's going to be the right thing uh, and making sure that, and then, let alone, can I get the data in the way that I want? It, there's And how do I want it? All of these are questions that are also very difficult to get to. Um, and so it's even for the, the startups working with you guys, like I think there needs to be an expectation for almost any company. Like if you're not willing to go through kind of that project planning and understanding phase and have a very crisp understanding of what needs to be delivered on and how, uh, you know, I think you're pretty much doomed for failure or at least spinning your wheels because no one's really aligned on the requirements that, you know, are going to move the needle. Yeah. And it, I think there's, some of this at some point there needs to be a leap of faith right it's just the the thing that i try to do or i think the distinction that i make is that like is that leap of faith on the specific solution or is it on the belief that the problem is solvable or like a general direction of problem solving that you need to move in in order to solve the problem because i think that's a um I would say the difference with us is that we made the leap of faith on the concept, right? To say like, hey, you know, the thing that I always say, it, we should be the most data-driven organizations in the world. Every single person that generates revenue in Wilson Sonsini and every single other law firm reports down what they're doing every six minutes of the workday, right? And then like, that's a trove, like they write narratives of describing what they're doing because they have to so that they can send the bill out, right? It's just this massive trove of information about what we're doing that can be tapped into if you know what you're doing, right? And so having kind of have that conviction at the beginning allows you to invest in having kind of, you know, the non-sexy things that are needed before you actually get to data science or machine learning or anything like that, right? To kind of prepare yourself right. and hire the people and, you know, kind of do the cleaning and all of those things. Um, and so that you can make that leap when it comes to a specific company that you work with or a specific solution rather than a much longer jump, right. From inception to finish that you, you know, it's like that scene in the matrix, probably most likely you fall down into the crevasse. Yeah. Uh, that like, I always reference it. I've probably referenced it before on the podcast, but, uh, Monica Rigotti's, uh, the data science hierarchy of needs, I think every, data leader should at least skim it. I think uh, it provides a really great picture and framework for there is a lot of unsexy slog that you have to kind of just go through and eat particularly and that uh, the pain of that slog is uh, directly correlated to how old of a company you are uh, and your either lack of adoption or lack of pace of adoption of new technologies uh, just to be able to get to the place to where you can take advantage of all of the new, you know, the newest and greatest and hottest, uh, sexiest AI that does everything, um, you know, 
legal GPT or, you know, whatever's going to come out of it. Uh, speaking of, uh, so how many, uh, chat GPT based lawyers, uh, lawyer companies have you had to, uh, have, have you had to turn down? <laughs> I think that's probably every other email these days. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think I am, I'm talking to probably like on average one investor a week. Um, that's looking at a company and the legal, like large language model, something, you know, large language model plus legal equals profit, like some, something in that variety. I mean, that's, um, that's math right there. If I've yeah. ever heard it. <laughs> and then obviously the companies themselves. And then there's also, um, kind of people in the market that have introduced, um, these capabilities. And then, you know, like people are already starting to experiment with that. And I think that the thing that I think it's incredibly impressive about ChatGPT and it's actually perfectly segues from what I was talking about earlier is, you know, how, like I was talking about that demonstration and the proof, and it's like, you need evidence yeah. of any proof. Like the power of ChatGPT is that it's self-evident, right? Yes. And it's just like, you can just, you know, it's a, that the language models of that power have existed for a while already, right? You know, you have Google, you have Meta, but like nobody made it available. The interface, accessibility. Right, and that easy and that accessible. Yeah. And once they did that, right, and then people were able to just kind of ask you a question that is, it changed the mindset and it became now all of a sudden just like a ground truth that large language models can't do those things. And so now you're starting in a very different position when you're having conversations with people. But I'll tell you that like, you know, the level of skepticism inside legal land is not, we haven't kind of put our evidentiary standards aside, right? Is that yeah. people feel like that you're starting at a kind of a higher um, level of what you demonstrated, but you, I don't think it's past like the beyond a reasonable doubt threshold yet. Yeah. And I, I think you said it perfectly. Uh, what I'd, I can't remember if I shared this with you before, but it's definitely worth sharing again. Uh, one of our customers, uh, you know, when talking about, you know, what's changed since chat GPT in her world as a leader, a data science leader at a, a relatively large startup, um, is not the work itself, but the expectation by product managers and business, what's called business problem owners at large, who may or may not be technical individuals, engineers, or data scientists themselves, can go to chat GPT and have an idea and this pace of prototyping and, and justification for look what I did and look what I can see as possible uh, has shifted dramatically. Uh, I said in our last podcast to Cheyenne, um, I, you know, I, I think chat GPT was made largely like for my mom uh, to get her aware that this technology can exist. But, you know, it falls apart pretty quickly when you start poking uh, the kind of very rough edges that are very apparent very quickly uh, with the current implementation of large language models. And, you know, it's, it, it, you start realizing that in kind of taking it back to this theme of trust, uh, when one, the outputs are fundamentally non-explainable, the outputs of the lar large language models, uh, you know, all it, what is it doing? It is guessing the next token based on these tokens. What should the next token or set of tokens be? Uh, that doesn't beget much trust 
outside of, well, I thought that was the right, like if you, if you were to hold that standard to a human and have that conversation, well, uh, how did you know that this was, these were the right set of words? Well, I guessed based on the last words and I read every book ever written and all of the internet and I can somehow recall it. Uh, I just guess what the appropriate word is based on what I've read. It, you know, it very, it doesn't have any true computation or like even citation. Uh, or ground truth that it can check against that you as a human, we are afforded to build that trust in an individual. Well, how did you know that? You know, what did you read? Like, who did you talk to? Well, you know, I talked to my professor and that's what we were taught and, you know, at, at Cambridge and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, great. That's a pretty reasonable thing to understand. I can also go look at other, you know, uh, relevant research in the area and I can validate that on my own. But when you start talking, poking at chat GPT, it has no ability to self-cite. Uh, hallucinations have been fun at a minimum and I think dangerous at worst. Uh, but I think that the, that it's really put the spotlight on is the necessity to be able to trust these outputs. Uh, but I'm also a little afraid that for the average person, that expectation that's been set, that's just so different than what four or five months ago now uh, for the average business problem owner, we're starting like who doesn't truly understand the lack of explainability or the danger potentially in not being able to trust those outputs explicitly. Uh, it's going it, it's going to be very interesting at a very at a minimum. Uh, but I hope that this doesn't excel. Like we're not able to uh, innovate, or we're able to innovate quickly enough to start building explainable first models and explainable first outputs, augmented language models. Uh, and basically have some sort of interpretable and explainable layer to where we can start poking and gain that trust uh, for you know either computations or uh, direct information or validated information recall. Yeah, I think the you know I think that's the job of people like me, right? And I think if you're kind of like a technology leader or even the technology leader in your company, I think one of the most important things that you kind of have to do is to try to explain to people what. Yeah these things are. And I think, you know, if you, it's not that hard if you kind of do a good job of explaining to say, you know, cause the thing that I always say is like, there's a kind of a dichotomy here that we have kind of a bias towards because of our human experience, right? Cause in our prior experience, uh, the only things that could produce answers like ChatGPT could produce were other people. Right. Right. And so you were kind of trained to associate kind of uh, your linguistic arts, language arts, uh, and the ability to, you know, in law, what we call Iraq, like, you know, kind of spot the issue and I, what the rule is and kind of compose an answer and analysis. And that is kind of has to be directly related to and part and parcel of um, the substantive understanding of the thing that you're asking, right? And so right. like the chat GPT, right, it's just, because it's such an alien thing, it's what it is, is that it's very capable in this linguistic part of it. And then because it's so capable in this ability, then you're all automatically assuming to it that it is similarly good at the substance part of it. Whereas the right. substance part of it is, you know, about truth, right? And that is, and there, it's not that it doesn't know truth, quote unquote, Right. It's that it knows truth purely through a statistical model based on the data set on which it was trained. Right. And so, like, if you happen to have a really good data set on the specific thing that you're asking that it's trained on, and this is often the case because it's been trained on a quite a lot of information, 
you can, you know, that's why it's able to get the right answer so often, right? Because I think that all the pieces you read in reporters is like sitting in front of the computer for like two days, going through a list of hard questions, like, aha, you know, you don't, right. don't know this, right? And I'm like, just think about what, how far it's come. And so that is just going to, that's just a data problem, right? It's just going to get better and better at that. But you need to understand that like, the nature of it is that it's always going to be statistical in nature based on kind of the data that is trained on until somebody comes up with something that is structurally, you know, kind of notionally different as an additional capability on top of or in conjunction with it, which many people are working on now. Right. So, yeah. And so, uh, so what do you like? So outside of a practitioner or even like a lawyer and just as like a general human who is, uh, kind of, living through this, what I feel is an inflection point, um, and someone with a young child, uh, how do you feel about the rise of AI generated content? What about the ability to trust content that we consume? Uh, I do believe that there will be a point, maybe not this year, next year or the year after, but I don't think it's going to be too much, much further than that, where the tipping point of the majority of content that is available to be consumed is generated by you know, insert, you know, chat GPT seven or insert new hotness here of some generative text. Um, how do we trust what we see online, uh, in a world where we already have so little trust as it is, um, with majority human generated content, or at least from on the platforms that we consume? Yeah, I think that, you know, I don't, I have many thoughts about that. I don't know about the wider world, but I, I certainly, I am observing a phenomenon here in, sunny middle park you know in the heart of silicon valley that uh, uh the market forces will be at work on those things just like it is at work on everything else and so yeah. um you know i as you've kind of mentioned i'm a painter but i you know i used to be a photographer primarily the reason why i got into painting well the most important reason is that i bought a house and it was too cheap to buy these paintings that i saw <laughs> like three thousand dollars for this i could do that and so that's the market, literally the market force painting. drives yeah just you know take something right like um and then but one of the reasons why i started painting was because i thought that the digital photography which i was doing before was made kind of like a little bit obsolete just yeah. by instagram and the kind of the ability to easily edit and make every picture perfect and because of the just the sheer volume of photos that you have now on instagram that it's like oh you took a pretty picture of this thing here's a 10 million other photos that are like beautiful and of this and like so it's just it made it not as interesting from an artistic perspective and i'm sure it also impacted the market value of those kind of photos and so i think you're going to see a very similar thing but guess what like art pricey art that's not going to change because the paintings that are pricey are not pricey because of something inherent about the piece itself right it's because you know there's collector value and social signaling and all of these things that make it you know expensive outside of what it is and what it took to produce and so i think you're going to see very similar thing with user generated content and this you know i'm already noticing that like for my friends that have kids and that they work at these big companies, tech companies, the closer they are to big tech and like the higher up they are, the more likely they are to send their kid to some like tech detox high school or like yeah, you know, let, the school is that like uh, Waldorf school, I think right. like doesn't 
doesn't introduce them to like the fifth grade or something. Yeah, like, yeah. That, like no to... phones, right? And then, so I'm like, wh- one thing I know for sure is that the value of the offline interaction is definitely going to increase relative to the value of online interaction because of the inability for you to kind of discern the difference. Yeah, there's a, I mean, putting like a little tinfoil hat on, I, I you know, uh, looking at the darker side of all of this, uh, I see us like, you know, again, not today or tomorrow, but not too long after where they're in personal security and just general uh, uh, operational security for the average, for the average person uh, having to starting to share like secrets, um, being able to validate an individual. Like I've told you in person, this was me. If I ever, you know, ask you or this question, you say this, uh, it, <laughs> the, you know, I mean, but for in, in all seriousness, because there's already uh you know, generative AI attacks where people are taking relatively small amounts of audio, uh, recorded audio, and are able to accurately reproduce someone's voice over the phone. Uh, call, uh, actually, this it's something similar happened to my co-founder. Uh, uh, his elderly, uh, it's an elderly family member got called and was uh, almost scammed uh, by someone that was imposing him. Well, what if it now looks like him or sounds yeah. like him? He's had recordings and video taken of him. Uh, more than, you know, definitely enough for it to train some generative model today. Uh, I see a future in which trust now becomes a first-class citizen ostensibly in a lot of our lives. It, it already is in a lot of ways. Um, we protect things like uh, our private keys in the form of our, of our credit card and, you know, financial information and such. But even more so as we start not being able to trust fundamentally the, the words, let alone the words we're reading, which I think we already have a pretty high... Uh, called a bullshitometer for, you know, incorrect words. But the second we start hearing or seeing, these are things that we're not really prepared for. Uh, I think it's going to be a very, uh, and a minimum interesting. Um, but to your point, the market forces will react. There will be like a value and a premium on technologies that validate individuals. Authentication will become, I think, something that uh, we as society will probably have to talk a little bit more um, in validating our online interactions or proving them. Uh, it's an exciting time, nonetheless. Um, it's, there's definitely a, and I, I like the anecdote about uh, the closer your friends are, the closer they are to big tech, the farther away they keep their children for as long as possible, uh, knowing that, uh, knowing the game we're all playing here. Yeah, I think that what is that saying? Like, um, you know, the internet it commoditizes information. I think what we're seeing now with kind of this really first generation, let's not joke ourselves of like really capable generative AI is that it's going to commoditize uh, analysis and to some extent knowledge as well. Right. Right. But the thing that it can't commoditize, I don't think is truth. Excellently put. And I think that's probably a great place to stop. Uh, So thanks so much for joining us at Grounded Truth. I'm your host, John Singleton co-founder and head of success at Watchful, joined by David Wang, chief innovation officer at Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati. Appreciate the time and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you for having me.